Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Christian Pugh. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And if you guys couldn't tell from that jazzed up intro, we have an announcement to make. (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting new intro. New Year, new intro. (laughs) Yeah, New Year, new intro. We have decided to join a podcasting network and we're really excited about this one. The Harbinger Media Network is across Canada and it's left-wing podcasts. And I have been absolutely jamming on Tech Won't Save Us (laughs) and the Alberta Advantage and the progress report and I'm really excited to check out more of the catalog. So yay us. (laughs) Hooray. (laughs) Yeah, very excited to join Harbinger and I hopefully this will mean that we do more collaborations. So get some new voices in with the podcast, hopefully some new ears to listen to. Very excited about it. Yeah. And I I don't know, I was just like binge listening to a bunch of the shows on the network and I felt like I was being radicalized and put it in a good way. <laughs> so we're, we're feeling pretty jazzed about 2022. <laughs> but today's episode is not all about <laughs> how excited we are to join a new network. Today's episode is about monopolies and not just the board game, I don't think. Although Kristen did all the research. Did you write 5,000 words on Monopoly, the board game? I did not. <laughs> I actually, I was thinking about opening with the whole Monopoly, the board game was supposed to be satire, now blah, 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 but I decided not to. (laughs) Although now I guess I just did. (laughs) I I don't know. I feel like that's pretty, it's pretty common knowledge, but for anyone who doesn't know, Monopoly, the board game was made as a satire and now it's just like the biggest board game in the world and people take (laughs) it seriously. And it's like, oh no, this is, that's not the point. The point is that you're supposed to hate your friends at the end because capitalism is terrible. (laughs) It's supposed to teach you that companies eventually amass all the power and all they do is literally rent seek. Literally. (laughs) So whenever you want to flip the game over at the end, that's the point that the creator had in mind. So they they deliberately created the world's most frustrating board game and somehow people love it. (laughs) I mean, I'm always down for a game of Monopoly, depending on who's playing. (laughs) Oh, man, I haven't played that game in years. Uh, So, Kyla, why don't we start with the content? And uh, I want to first ask you, what is a monopoly? Oh, man, (laughs) I probably should have maybe written down a definition. Okay, so here's my idea of what a monopoly is. It is one company that owns the production and distribution of like one product, basically. But I feel like in our complicated world of today, that's not a good enough definition anymore. No, you're broadly right. Um, So a monopoly, it basically just means that there's one seller that has all the power. So there's one seller that's selling a unique product or service on the market. Similarly, if you have a duopoly, that means there are two. And an oligopoly means that there's like a handful. Yeah. And that's like the biggest problem that Canada has right now, because we have like, don't we have anti-monopoly laws, but because we have oligopolies with our, with our, what, airlines and our cell phone companies that there's nothing we can do about it. I don't know. You'll get into it. You've written like a whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to focus mainly on the United States today, because to be frank, there's basically no public discourse in Canada on monopolies. The uh, Competition Bureau exists 
and it exists. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> talks about it, really. We will talk about sort of like the rules around Monopoly. I do want to talk, though, because there are different kinds of Monopoly. Did you know this? No. I mean, I knew that there was the oligopolies and the duopolies, but I didn't realize there was different kinds of monopolies. Yeah. So you can be a monopoly in different ways. So one way is geographical. So that's where you're sort of controlling the market in a specific geographic area. So like back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, that happened a lot with railway networks. Um, so you can oh. think about that as an example. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. Or you could think about like the Irvings in Atlantic Canada. They, you know, own a lot of stuff in that geographic area, very powerful in the media there. Then there's something called horizontal integration. And that basically means when someone takes over an, a, a specific industry. So that's what you would traditionally associate with monopoly. But there's also something called vertical integration. And that's basically when one company controls every step of a production process. And that can be problematic as well. Um, so that was something that we had talked in the Halloween episode about. I had shared a scary story about Standard Oil. <laughs> Standard Oil and a lot of the, the robber barons in like the Gilded Era did that. And we do see a fair amount of that today. So there are different ways that you can be a monopoly. There's also something called a monopsony. Have you ever heard of that? No, but I love the word monopsony. <laughs> yeah. So if a monopoly means that um, one company has all of the selling power, so they're the one seller in a, marker, uh, in a market, a monopsony is basically the opposite. So it means that there's one buyer that has all of the power. So there's one company that is buying a unique product on the market. Oh. And again, you can also have duopsonies and oligopsonies. <laughs> So. I see. So would the would the coffee industry kind of work that way? Yeah, it would probably be an oligopsony. Because like, I remember from our co coffee episode, you were like, oh, like one company is basically buying everything. Or maybe I'm thinking of something else. We've done so many episodes. Yeah, you could also think of tea um, and uh, chocolate was is also another one you might think about in that sort of realm. So yeah, just to, to sort of frame, I'll probably be talking just about monopolies when I mean like oligopoly and monopsony and oligopsony, just because it's a lot of different terms. It, you know, can get really messy otherwise. And oftentimes the same company can sort of have multiple of these things going on. So if I'm using monopoly and you think, hey, that she should actually be saying monopsony, I'm just doing that for ease. So chill listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know what antitrust is? Yes, but now that I'm being asked on the spot, I don't know. If I, like, I definitely do, but but now I forget. <laughs> no worries. So antitrust, it just refers to the rules that regulate monopolies. And it's called that basically because a lot of the old-timey monopolies were organized as trusts, um, so like conglomerates of different companies. That's what they were called at the time. Um, so that's why it's called antitrust. You can also think about it as anti-monopoly. And in Canada, it's known as competition law. So it's a little bit different. I remember learning when I was like a kid, back when I just believed things that adults told me, that monopolies aren't possible anymore because we have like rules and regulations against them. And it took me well into adulthood to be like, wait a second. <laughs> I see monopolies everywhere. Wait a second. Why are there only three telecoms companies? <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I was actually reading about that specific case in Canada and it's like, well, there's not enough people in Canada and we're all so spread out that it's really hard to have a lot of competition. But also it doesn't help that the telecoms companies we have are monsters. But Allegedly monsters. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Allegedly <laughs> they're monsters. But like, what the hell? Like, why do we even have antitrust <laughs> laws if they're not doing anything? Looking at you, Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. Well, I mean, one of the problems is that Antitrust and competition law, it was created for the problems of the late 1800s and early 1900s. So in a lot of ways, it just hasn't kept up. And then there's another problem that's specific to the United States that this group of economists that we'll call the Chicago boys, I'll explain them later in the episode, (laughs) have gutted antitrust law. So even those laws that were designed for the, you know, early 1900s world, they would still apply to a lot of monopolies today. But the interpretation of the law has been twisted, and also it's so hard for enforcers to bring cases that they often don't anymore. So we have this problem of there are laws on the books, but they're not being enforced. And we also have this problem of the laws really need to be modernized. And that's the really big problem in Canada. Okay, so I want to go through sort of the roadmap for today. I want to talk about some of the basics. So I'll give you a quick um, description of how antitrust um, is regulated, how it works in general. And then after that, I want to talk a little bit about what are the rules around monopoly, what in general is legal and illegal. And then after that, I'll talk about why monopolies are bad and the monopoly crisis. And then at the end, we'll, we'll get into sort of like, how did we get, how do we get to where we are today? And also, what are some solutions going forward? Sounds like this is going to be a long one, listeners. Buckle in. <laughs> <laughs> Strap in. Okay, so I had mentioned that antitrust basically is just the rules around monopoly. And I want to talk a little bit about how antitrust is regulated in the United States and Canada. I'll note that I am not a lawyer. I am not an expert in this. So this is a general overview and it is quite complicated, but this should give you a good general sense of how things work. So um, in the United States, there are two main actors that enforce monopoly rules or antitrust. And one of them is the Federal Trade Commission or the FTC. And the other one is the Department of Justice. So basically what happens is these agencies, um, they can receive notifications from companies if they plan to merge, um, or they can also get complaints or tips, or they can see news reports um, that maybe some illegal stuff's going, going on potentially. And then they'll investigate it if they find out that there's, they think there's something going on, they'll bring an antitrust case. However, in the United States, it's a little bit different than other places in the world um, in that in the US, United States, they have to actually go to court and bring these cases up in sort of like the open court process. So they have to sue corporations. And oftentimes, these cases can go all the way up to the Supreme Court. At the same time, they're not the only actors that can bring antitrust cases, which is also something that is, as far as I was able to find, unique to the United States. At the state level, you can also have state's attorneys general who will bring forward antitrust cases. um, And sometimes they'll team up into like, you know, California will work with like New York or something like that to bring forward these cases. As well, if you're a company or even a group of individuals, you can also sue for antitrust, um, although it is a lot harder for groups of individuals to sue just because um, there have been laws that have been passed that have made it hard to, to do that. So it's not an even playing field by any means. It's mostly these like government enforcers and um, companies, what we might call repeat players that are engaging in the court system. But in theory, anyway, everybody has to go through the court to enforce antitrust cases in the states. 
And another thing, element of this is because court cases are really expensive and they take a really long time, most of the time, if you're a government antitrust enforcer, you're going to settle most of the time rather than taking the risk of losing a case and having that precedent hang over your head forever. So the result of that is that there are a lot of compromises that fail to fix underlying problems that end up happening. All right, so that's in the States. There's this like adversarial court system that defines antitrust. In Canada, it is a little bit different. So we have something called the Competition Bureau, and they're there to enforce the Competition Act. So the Competition Bureau, they'll investigate those breaches. And if they decide they have a strong enough case, they're going to go to a specific tribunal called the Competition Tribunal. And the Competition Tribunal decides whether the law has been violated, and if so, what the punishments will be. And as far as I was able to understand, you know, the EU and other places work a lot more like that. It's a little bit more of a simple process. It's more technical. And um, you have sort of like specific competition experts that are on the tribunal. All right. For the purposes of this episode, we're going to focus mostly on the United States. Um, and the reasons for that are just that um, many of the largest monopolies in the world are American. And most of the attention on monopolies is on American antitrust because um, there's some fucked up stuff going on in it. I want to highlight that a lot of my research is drawing on a book called Monopolies Suck by Sally Hubbard. I would really <laughs> recommend people go out and read this book. It made me super angry at corporations. <laughs> what a great title, though. Yes. Not uh, not beating around the bush at all. <laughs> this is what this book is about. No, and it's in huge letters, too. So if you're reading it at like a cafe or something, everyone will know so yeah, we are going to be focusing on the states um, for this episode. That doesn't mean that Canada doesn't have monopolies. We absolutely do. We've got oligopolies in industries like airlines, banking, telecoms, insurance, media, housing. Oligopolies are all over the place in Canada. Our legislation is not perfect. Uh, it really needs to be fixed. But the United States has like Facebook and Google, and so it'll be more fun to talk about. So let's talk about sort of like what the rules are around monopoly. Monopoly on its own is not actually illegal. What is illegal is to monopolize. So illegal monopolization, if you want to prove that in court, you have to prove to sort of meet two different requirements. You have to meet both of them. So the first one is you need to establish that there's monopoly power. And the second one is you have to prove that a company has acquired or maintained their monopoly power using something called exclusionary conduct. So monopoly power is basically the ability to control prices or to exclude competition. So if a company has the power to kick a competitor out of the market or to set prices, then it has monopoly power. Have you ever heard of Netscape, Kyla? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Tell me what you know about Netscape. <laughs> uh, all I know is that it's from the early internet. Uh, did it used to be a browser and then Google came along? <laughs> yeah, it used to be a browser. And actually, Google didn't come along. Microsoft came along and was like, no. Uh... One of the biggest antitrust cases that's been out there is um, it's called US versus Microsoft. And it was dealing with uh, how... Microsoft basically kicked Netscape out of the game and squashed it. This has been ruled upon, so I don't have to say allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> In this case, they found direct evidence that Microsoft had been exercising that monopoly power. So they had found direct uh, correspondence showing that Microsoft executives did not think they could compete directly with Netscape. 
And also they could prove that Microsoft's actions, um, basically they pre-installed Internet Explorer onto all PCs and they also integrated it into Windows. So if you tried to use another browser like Netscape, it was going to be super glitchy. They were able to use that evidence to show, look, this monopoly power is clearly being used to kick competitors, i.e. Netscape, out of the market. It didn't even work because nobody's using Microsoft browsers these days anyways. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, well, the court ruling is actually why we have Google, um, because it was ruled that they couldn't undertake these practices anymore, that they had to allow non-Microsoft browsers to work. They couldn't make them glitchy. And so Google came along and succeeded. It was too late for Netscape. Netscape had already died. But the reason that we have Google today is that Microsoft was prohibited from keeping them out of the game. So <laughs> we'll talk more about Google being a monopoly later. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, there's sometimes there's that direct evidence like they had in the case of Microsoft. But what happens if you can't find direct evidence? That doesn't necessarily mean that enforcers can't prove there's monopoly power. Sometimes they'll look for indirect evidence. So sometimes market share is used as a good example of this. And it can demonstrate that there are barriers that um, make it really hard for competitors to enter the market. So generally, a market share of 70% or more automatically qualifies as monopoly power, um, and less than that can even be enough. So you don't need to have 100% of the market to be in monopoly. 70% or more is enough. And sometimes even less than that, depending on what else goes on in the case. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, okay, if market share is evidence of monopoly power, what exactly is the market we're talking about? And that becomes a huge problem in a lot of antitrust cases. A market, it basically includes only those companies that customers are likely to switch to when prices go up or when quality goes down. So it's a direct uh, substitute that customers can immediately switch between. Companies will try to argue to define their market as widely as possible. And I'll give you the example of Amazon, right? When Amazon tries to define their own market that they're in, they'll say they're part of all retail and we can't be in monopoly because we're only 4% of all retail. But all retail includes all online stores and all physical stores that exist. And, you know, obviously, if Amazon raises prices on, let's say, beauty supplies, a local hardware store is not a substitute for that. You know, that's not the same. So it's often defined much more narrowly than you might sort of conceptually think. Another myth to bust here is that um, just because you can delete Facebook does not mean they're not a monopoly. So a company doesn't have to have a mandatory product in order to have monopoly power. The example that Sally Hubbard gives in the book, which I think is a good one, is that anybody at any point could decide to stop drinking milk. I'll raise my hand. I don't drink milk anymore. <laughs> but that doesn't mean there's no such thing as a milk monopoly. That can still exist if um, you know a producer has enough market share in milk, even if not everybody buys or drinks milk. Okay, so if you, once you've established that monopoly power, you also have to prove a second condition, which is that there's exclusionary conduct that's gone on. So a company's not only big, has a lot of market share, but also they're trying actively to kick rivals out of the market or they're trying to control prices. Basically, the question that enforcers will ask themselves when they are trying to decide if exclusionary conduct exists is, if a challenger puts forth a product or a service that is the same or better than a powerful company's offering, do they actually have a shot at success? And if the answer is no, you have illegal monopolization. I, I am sure you're going to get into this, but like, does any of that include like Facebook buying Instagram and WhatsApp and Google swallowing up any competitors? And 
specifically, I'm looking at you, Disney. Like, <laughs> what exists out there that isn't a Disney movie anymore? You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, I mean, there's two things there. One, something called a killer acquisition, where you're buying things just to kill the company. That's illegal monopolization. But also, certain kinds of mergers are illegal as well. So, in addition to illegal mo monopolization being something you can't do, uh, mergers are also illegal where the effect of the merger would be to substantially lessen competition or to create a monopoly. And there's actually a separate law that establishes that as a rule. So that's in addition to illegal monopolization. One of the problems in the States, though, um, is that many recent mergers and acquisitions um, that are potentially illegal under the law, um, they're not really being enforced because there's just a lack of political will. So and sometimes it's hard to see what the effect of a merger will be until afterwards, right? Like you can look at Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp as examples of things that probably in hindsight we know were probably illegal mergers, but that were just never enforced. And here's a stat that I hated. So together, Facebook and Google have bought over 150 companies since 2013. So, <laughs> Oh, that's so sad. You can't go anywhere on the internet without supporting Google or Facebook. And we live online. I, I don't know if you had this built into the flow of, of your of your plan for this episode, but you you gave me the challenge of looking at a monopoly and finding a substitute. And I was like, fuck. Like I was looking at Google and I was like, <laughs> oh, I'll, we use Google Docs to share because we, we live on opposite ends of the country to share like notes and stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll get us off Google Docs. No, I won't. No, no I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking at like different workflow apps and stuff. And even if I found a good one, if I followed the chain up high enough, I'm sure it's owned by Google or Facebook or Amazon or something, you know? So it's and like- if it's not, it probably will be in five years. Yeah. I know. Yeah. God damn. All right. Well, carry on. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I think most of us know that monopoly and oligopoly, it's a big problem for big tech, but monopoly is actually a huge problem in pretty much every aspect of the economy. So nearly every marketplace is more concentrated than it was a generation ago. This is something that ac academics have really documented. There's what's called industry concentration, which basically just means that power is concentrated into fewer hands, which results in less competition. And that that's happened sort of overall since the 1990s. So we're really in a monopoly crisis, and it affects almost every aspect of our lives. That might be why when I was a kid, all of the grownups in my life were like, oh, monopolies used to be a huge problem, but now we're in a golden age. Well, th there'll never be an issue again. And then as I have grown up into the world, I'm like, wait, was I tricked? But it's like, no, I just grew up in the time where monopolies were also growing up. Yeah, exactly. I want to give you some examples, though, just to highlight the range of industries where this is the case. So you want to buy a washer, dryer, or dishwasher? If you're in the United States, 80% of that market is owned by one company, Whirlpool. Nike controls almost two-fifths of the global sports shoe industry. The U.S. defense contracting industry, what a fun industry that we'll have to do an episode on. <laughs> it's also become more concentrated. In 1993, they had 107 defense contracting firms, um, and there are only five today. That's despite the fact that military contracting is definitely going up. There are three companies that control 80% of baby formula. There are two companies that control 90% of dialysis centers. So if you need dialysis, you really only have two choices. And there are three publishers that control 80% of the textbook market. 
food is one of the hugest areas where there's been monopolization or there, there are oligopolies, particularly in the United States. So a generation ago, if you looked at most food items, most of them were produced by small independent farms. That's totally not the case today. To give you the example of milk, there are two companies, Dean Foods and Dairy Farmers of America, and they control somewhere between 80 and 90% of U.S. milk supply. The story is really similar in eggs, grain, meat, produce, and food processing. So really any aspect of food, it's a monopoly or an oligopoly. Just to highlight, um, there's more industry uh, concentration, and that has really rocketed up corporate profit margins. So they were around 20% in the 1980s, and now they're double that, 40% in 2017. So companies are really getting rich off of being monopolies. At this point, uh, I mean, I think a lot of our uh, listeners will already intuitively know that monopolies are bad. But let's say a, left, a less uh, left-wing person might be asking at this point, why, are, why is it necessarily the case that monopolies are bad? You know, like maybe big companies are good and can help us compete internationally. You know, that's definitely a mindset that's been there um, in a number of cases. Unfortunately, the concentration of economic power, it harms society in a whole bunch of ways. We're probably going to spend about an hour of the podcast talking about all the different ways. <laughs> but I just want to highlight sort of a broad perspective first. So above all, being in a monopoly allows companies to adopt business practices that are exploitative rather than generative. So in other words, a monopoly only has to work for the monopolist. They don't need to work for anybody else because they have no fear of you going elsewhere. You can't. They're a monopoly. So I'm not here to argue that capitalism is flawless or even a good system, um, but you know, let's let's meet market logic on its own terms because even within like the pro-capitalist logic, monopolies are super bad. Proponents of capitalism want markets to be fair and open, um, and the idea is that you can have anybody compete, and in theory, anyway, the best competitor is going to win the day. That's that's the goal, anyway. So from this perspective, if competition works, it should produce innovation and it should create productivity increases, which then should mean that workers have to work less hard and that consumers get better products for less money. Wait a second. Sounds pretty great, right? None of that is happening. <laughs> Hang on. I feel no. like I've been duped. <laughs> yeah. So of course, we know that capitalism does not look anywhere near this in practice. Uh, companies want to make money and they want to gain as much market share as possible. And in fact, they're institutionally set up to maximize shareholder value. So that is the thing they want. And that leads them to try various tactics to consolidate power as much as possible. So monopolies are basically what happens when companies succeed in taking all of the power. So monopolies and monopsonies cause an array of problems that's linked to the amount of power they've concentrated in their hands. Um, and that allows a powerful few to dictate terms to the rest of us. So it's bad. Uh, we'll talk about how it's bad for consumers. We'll talk about how it's bad for employees. But it's also bad for economies, democracy, and also society more broadly. So we'll talk about that as well. Uh, I just watched the movie Don't Look Up. And it, <laughs> the the Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos stand-in that they had, the <laughs> the CEO of their big tech company, calling the president out of the war room while they were trying to solve the, the meteor crisis and just being like, oh, actually, I don't want you to do this. And the president being like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> just, <laughs> it just what makes me, that's what I think of when I think of a monopoly. It's just like, they don't even need to run for political office to have all the power. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's a really good example. And we'll talk more about democracy and uh, why having monopolies is really bad for it. <laughs> <laughs> but first, let's talk about uh, consumers. This might be an intuitive point, but it's one that's good to make. Being able to switch companies is really important for consumers because having a choice empowers you and it helps to stop companies from treating you badly. So we live in a society that has really high prices and absurd fees on many aspects of our lives. These are monopoly rents. They are not natural. They are not things we have to put up with. They're things that companies can only charge because they don't face open competition. In telecoms, we often have to put up with mystery setup fees and sudden rate increases. Uh, I've got a friend who likes to say that phone companies are the only relationship in your life where an ultimatum is actually productive. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is you really can't threaten to leave because there's only three companies out there. Airlines, there are baggage fees. And now they're even trying to charge for carry-on luggage space. Um, you know, these are fees that didn't exist previously, and they can only really exist because the market is becoming less competitive. I have an example. Ticketmaster, fuck you. <laughs> oh my God, I know nothing about Ticketmasters and Monopoly. <laughs> oh, they're just like the only place where you can go to buy tickets. I've been trying to buy tickets to shows like from the shows directly and they're like, no, just buy it from Ticketmaster. And I'm like, fuck, I hate Ticketmaster. They charge crazy fees. And the last time I, I sold, so they've added this feature where you can sell your tickets. So I sold a ticket in fucking August and they haven't given me my money for it yet. And I keep sending them emails and there's no way to phone Ticketmaster. They do not have a customer service phone line. And that is unthinkable. 10 years ago, can you imagine like not being able to call a company and talk to a person when you have an issue that can very quickly be fixed? And that's only something that they can institute because they're the only company selling tickets. Fuck you, Ticketmaster. Carry on, Kristen. <laughs> no, it's it's similar to the experience my mom had uh, waiting for WestJet. Uh, she was on hold for something like 14 hours before she got through with them. Like, if we had a more competitive airline industry, or even if they were public utilities where there was political accountability, like that shit wouldn't happen. We're paying more for things now than we ever have. And it's not because of the dollar amount. Like we're not, maybe we're not paying more like with the actual dollars, but we're paying more with the shittier service, right? Like we're paying the same amount and we're getting less for it. Yeah. And we are also paying more in actual dollars. To give you a good example <laughs> of this uh, is housing. So there was a study that was done in the States and it found that most communities are controlled by just a handful of home builders. And that same study looked at um, you know, prices between 2013 uh, and 2017. And they found that um, home prices increased by more than double the rate that they would have gone up um, if the market had not been as concentrated as it was. So we are literally paying more for every aspect of our life because you know, we're not dealing with monopolies properly. These laws have been on the book for a century. Come on. Anyway. <laughs> but it's not just the prices. It's also sort of different ways that companies can extract those monopoly rents from us. And the big example of that in big tech is personal data. You know, they use our personal data as commodities. 76% of websites have hidden Google trackers in them. This is something I... So... I looked at uh, DuckDuckGo, which is a solution we'll talk about a little later. And also, um, I've been on Firefox for a couple of years because they have better privacy settings. And I looked, and Firefox in the two years that I've had it has blocked trackers over 12,000 times. So, you know, it's a lot of trackers. And that's just the ones they catch. 
This is, though, this was fucked. This was a quote from uh, the Monopoly Suck book. In one study, an Android phone that was stationary and not in use, but had the Chrome browser open in the background, communicated location data to Google 340 times in 24 hours. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like we should do a whole episode on, on privacy because I, I, I always forget, like, why does it matter? You know, it doesn't matter if I get tracked. I like, per, I have nothing to hide. And that's, I know that that's a terrible refrain. And I have learned why it's a terrible refrain, but I always forget why. And then I just go back to being complacent. And I'm like, oh, who cares if I'm being tracked? But like, I know that it's wrong. So we should do an episode about it so I can just remind myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, also just to talk about it briefly, this book brings up, um, there's this guy that went to jail for a week because location data put him at like the location of a crime and he was actually just in his house but because you know google i think it was google one of the big tech companies they get like thousands of requests from um government authorities all the time to give their data and they very rarely refuse it and so like this person because they had their phone on and were being tracked went to jail even though they hadn't done anything and they were there for a week so Another problem is because these big tech companies are reaching out into a bunch of new sort of industries, right? Like Amazon um, purchasing Whole Foods and also they're they're buying a lot more into sort of medical now. Um, they're getting more into sort of the medical field in the States. Um, I want to read this excerpt from the book about Google's acquisition of Fitbit. So as Amazon and Google expand into healthcare, our personal data can be used against us in countless ways. Think Amazon expanding into health insurance and then using your Whole Foods purchase history to decide how much to charge you or whether to cover you at all? Not enough kale, too much ice cream and beer? Denied. Or picture Google getting into health insurance and your Fitbit showing only one workout a month. High Google care prices for you. So like there's a lot of ways that aren't just sort of like government acquisition of the data, but also just ways in which our lives can be deeply affected by privacy infringement. And also just that like we act differently when we know we're being surveilled. So, you know, privacy is an inherent thing. I don't want to talk about it too much, though, because we will do a whole episode on privacy and big tech. But it is an important aspect to talk about in terms of monopoly power, because monopoly power enables big tech to surveil us because there are no real alternatives. So it either needs competition or it needs regulation or it needs both. And getting neither has really gotten us into a bad situation. In addition to being able to seek those monopoly rents in the form of, you know, commodifying our data and also charging us higher prices, industry concentration also means that companies can provide lower quality goods and services without fear of losing our business. So you think about airlines, most have gotten rid of meals on all except very long flights. Another example is Bayer Monsanto. So I think we've talked about glyphosate on the podcast before, um, but it's the active ingredient in Roundup, and it has been found to be carcinogenic. Bayer Monsanto has lost court cases about this because they have given people cancer. And despite that, they plan to keep selling the product without a warning label. So that's the kind of shit you can do when you're a monopoly. <laughs> like, the other thing is that monopolies can dictate wildly unfair contract terms. One example that's, it would be really well known if you were American. I did not really know about this until recently, but there are often things called exclusivity requirements in pharmaceutical contracts. So meaning that you can sort of 
if you're purchasing a pharmaceutical or what or something from a, a drug company that you can only purchase that one you can't purchase the generics so that's a fairly common practice it's pretty fucked up and there's one example of this that i thought was really good from the book um, so it talks about there's this company called mylan um, that makes the EpiPen. Um, which is like, a, you know, if you're going into anaphylactic shock from an allergy, an EpiPen is a life-saving device. They control 90% of the market for this kind of product. So they've increased their prices a lot over time. Between 2007 and 2017, the price went from $100 to $600. So it's gotten a lot more pricey. So there was a competitor named Sanofi that tried to enter the market with a cheaper alternative, you know, what in theory, if you're a capitalist, you want markets to be able to do, right? You think competition does have this mechanism. And so the alternative they came up with was something called OVQ. But Mylan, um, they started demanding exclusivity requirements from the places that buy EpiPens, um, including schools. So schools that bought EpiPens, they were banned from buying any OVQ in their contracts. And that ultimately meant that when Mylan was experiencing supply chain issues because they had a problem with one of their factories, the lack of competition actually was literally life-threatening because people couldn't get the life-saving products they had, even though there was a cheaper alternative on the market. They weren't allowed to contractually buy them. So one more thing for consumers, uh, we are often provided with the illusion of choice um, by different brands that are operated through the same company. And that's another way in which you know we're really duped by monopolies. So, for example, if you're looking to rent a car, 11 different brands are really just three companies. <laughs> Telecoms, you know, if you're in Canada, Virgin, Fido, Freedom, and Kudu are really just Rogers, Bell, and Telus in trench coats. Want to buy some laundry detergent? Whether you get Tide, Gain, Bounce, Era, Cheer, or Downy, they're all owned by Procter & Gamble. Same fucking company. And then, you know, a lot of the fast food chains are owned by either Yum Brands or Restaurant Brands International. We often think we have a choice because the brands are different, but oftentimes there are monopolies underneath. So when you have a monopoly, it means that employees also have fewer choices. And that in turn, unsurprisingly, means lower pay, worse working conditions, and greater vulnerability to discrimination and abuse. The consolidation of the economy, it's one big reason that employee wages have actually stagnated for decades, despite the fact that our productivity has been going up and corporate profitability has been going up. So there are other things that are causing this issue too, but industry concentration is one big factor. Employee pay, it has hardly increased at all since the 1980s. Between 1973 and 2014, productivity has gone up 72%, while employee pay has risen only 9%. So that's why you've seen things like corporate profitability doubling, and also CEO pay has risen 940% since 1978. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, all they needed to do... So, 9% wage increase to a 72% productivity increase. So, wages should have gone up by 72% as well. Mm -hmm. But instead, we have fucking billionaires on their way to being trillionaires. Yeah, exactly. So, the profits have really been going into a few hands. And that is really linked to industry con concentration. There was an economic study that was done that found when a labor market goes from the 25th percentile of concentration to the 75th percentile, so meaning that it becomes a lot more concentrated, um, it generates a 17% decline in wages. 
There's a lot of technical language, but basically they've proven that concentration makes wages lower. Corporate consolidation also makes it more difficult for workers to organize because it makes anti-union tactics like firing organizers a lot more effective. They have fewer other options. They have fewer places to go. It also means that monopolies can defend can demand really unfair contract terms for employees. Um, so things like, have you ever heard of non-compete clauses? Yeah, I've had to sign a whole bunch of them. Yeah, so tell listeners what they are. <laughs> well, you just can't go, like, I actually had to sign, <laughs> I had to sign one for Blockbuster Video, but I don't think it really no applied to, <laughs> like, I was just like a, per, like a re- retailer at the bottom. I don't think it really would have applied to me. I don't think they would have punished me if I'd gone to work for Rogers Video. <laughs> <laughs> but but the idea is that you cannot work for a competitor within like six months to a year to a whatever defined time frame after leaving that company. And I think the idea is that you can't because then you would like take your clients with you and stuff. I mean, nobody was going to follow me from Blockbuster to Rogers. So it was funny that I had to sign one, but that's just the generic form they made everyone sign. It was stupid. <laughs> yeah. And I personally think they should be illegal um, because they really... Like if the idea is that you're also competing for the best, um, you know, employees by having the best conditions and things like that, if that's part of the capitalist equation of how things are supposed to work, then like a non-compete clause is not fucking fair. Not that capitalism is ever fair, but like, like, even by their own logic, it's not fair. (laughs) Yeah, because then the idea is that like, oh, if you want to quit and go work for someone else in your industry, you have to take six months to a year off of working entirely, or you have to switch industries. It's really like, it makes it impossible for you to leave your job if you're high up enough that you wouldn't be able to, like, I can change industries because I'm at the bottom. Who cares? But if you're an executive or you're working in a specific, like maybe you're a programmer or something, and like, it's really hard to find another company that doesn't fall into that non-compete clause. Yeah. And in addition to having those specific clauses, um, there's also evidence that companies are colluding to keep pay low, which, by the way, is illegal. (laughs) (laughs) So there have been lawsuits in a bunch of places for this. Uh, Two examples are um, nurses in the United States have filed lawsuits against hospitals for colluding to keep pay low. Shepherds, which I didn't know was an actual profession in 2021, but is apparently. They've been doing the same with ranchers. uh, So They've been colluding to make, keep pay low. I have a question. If healthcare in the United States costs so much money, why can't they pay the nurses? They can. <laughs> <laughs> There's some combination of sexism and, you know, people just wanting to line their pockets at the top and, you know, all the power being consolidated and every politician being bought. Blech. And I mean, the reality is just when you have fewer options, uh, you know, it's easy for companies to collude because, you know, it would be hard to collude with 100 companies and not get caught. But if you're sort of like three to six companies, like you can, these executives all sort of know each other. They're all in the same WhatsApp group. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So like big tech's a good example of this as well. Beginning in 2005, several of the major tech companies began agreeing not to recruit one another's employees, which the DOJ concluded was illegal uh, under the Obama administration. But guess what the penalty was that they imposed? Oh, like a $500 fine? (laughs) No, not even that. Uh, They (laughs) prohibited companies from breaking the law again. (laughs) That was all they did. Wait. (laughs) But wait. What? That's not even a slap on the wrist. 
I know. Yeah, like you already can't break the law. What the fuck, Obama oh, administration? You already <laughs> can't break the law. So yeah, I mean the the summary of this is basically like when employees don't have a lot of choices, it really allows big corporations to exploit them. It's bad, and it's particularly bad for people who are. Um, racialized or women because it means that you also have problems of discrimination that can't as easily be dealt with because you can't leave. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've been seeing that in a shock. Like, I I think the last year has really been opening people's eyes to the anti-union movement that's been happening with big Mm -hmm. companies because people have been trying to unionize and there's been very public cases of people being fired illegally and nothing being done about it. And I think this is something that people didn't think could happen anymore. I certainly had been led to believe that by the people of authority in my life. So then to see it happening blatantly and being very much publicized in the news, it's not like it's being hushed up. They're not even trying to hide it. They're like, yeah, we're going to fire union organizers and we're not even going to pretend like we're doing something else. And it's because there's no one to check these things. Yeah, and I mean, it's part of it is linked to concentration. It makes the problem worse, but there's also a huge problem of like the rules around uh, anti-union activities aren't strong enough, the penalties aren't strong enough, and also there's not enough enforcement. So there's like a whole other clusterfuck on that side that maybe, maybe in the show notes we'll link to our May Day special to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but definitely, monopoly and oligopoly is a huge part of it because. It makes collusion easier um, and harder to catch. And also it means that employees have fewer choices. So it's a lot easier to exploit people that way. Yeah, I just it's pretty wild to me that in the last in the last year specifically, the just like anti-union busting like used or union busting used to be like really kind of like hidden and they would do subtle things to make it stop. Uh, Like when I worked at Walmart and they made me watch, like go through like a two hour anti-union training, they didn't call it that and they didn't (laughs) say they were anti-union, but that's like what it was. Can't say that they still do it. It was 10 years ago. It definitely happened to me. Not gonna, Walmart (laughs) don't come at me, but this is how I was trained. And that was kind of subtle. Now they're not even being subtle about it. They're like, fuck you. You can't do anything about it. Yeah, you're fired. Get out. Yeah. yeah. We are not even going to pretend because that's extra work and why bother? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So in addition to being bad for consumers and employees, um, it's also monopolies are also bad for the economy in a few different ways. So the first one, um, innovation is a buzzword, but it does matter. And monopolies do stifle innovation by cutting out competition. You know, you can't you can't get new stuff if nobody new can enter the market reasonably, right? So one good example of this, I the, it was also from the same Monopoly Suck book. I thought it was a really great example, and it was the invention of something called the retractable syringe. Um, and so. Is these two people, uh, Lillian Salerno and Thomas Shaw, they invent the retractable syringe with the goal of sort of preventing nurses from accidentally sticking themselves with needles. The reason that they did that is basically that that was, they heard that was one reason that nurses were sort of reticent to treat HIV patients. So it was seen as a way to sort of improve treatment for people with HIV AIDS. So they invent this syringe. Nurses really like it. They think we're going to go to the market. This is going to this is going to rock. We're going to change the world, you know. Um, but when they go to market, they find that they can't actually get their syringes into hospitals because this company called Becton Dickinson and Company, who controlled um, more than eighty percent of the market, 
they basically blocked them using unfair practices. So um, after something like 20 years, um, you know, Salerno and Shaw um, have been winning some court cases, but they've been so mired in litigation that their solution hasn't really been able to make a difference in the way that they'd hoped. So that's one example of how monopoly really means that we're missing out on great improvements to, you know, whether it be products or services or business practices, you know, in, in various ways, we're not seeing innovation that could really make everybody's lives better. Well, and you see this a lot in the in the green movement of the like 80s and 90s. We could have had, I, I'm pretty sure, I don't know, I'm saying this like I know, but I'm pretty sure we could have had electric cars like decades ago, but big companies were like, mm, we don't like that. So we're going to <laughs> like, I don't know, buy the patents and hide them or something. Like, I don't remember what happened. I think there's like documentaries about it, but just innovations in in green tech and energy have been being destroyed for <laughs> years and years. I almost said something nice about Elon Musk there. So we'll move on before I do. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is not about that. Um, yeah. So <laughs> Another thing, and um, we had talked about all the problems that, um, you know, monopolies cause for employers. Monopsonies also cause the same problems for um, suppliers, right? So whether you're directly employed or you supply, when one company has a lot of power, that means they can exploit you, right? So, you know, if suppliers don't have any other choices, monopsonies can sort of squeeze them, which means lower wages for their workers, which means as well worse working conditions, so it's that has bad runoff effects, not only for the companies in that one industry, but also in all of the industries that supply the monopoly. So just to give you one example, um, Bayer Monsanto, uh, we talked about them already with Roundup, but we're going to talk about them again. They patent a lot of seeds and, you know, farmers have to sort of buy in to use their seed. But obviously, like wind and rain often blow seeds into other people's yards. And so, you know, farmers have been sued for patent infringement because these seeds end up in their yards, <laughs> even though they aren't customers. The chicken industry is also a good example of how monopsonies can fuck with suppliers. So Tyson Foods in the United States, um, it accounts for two thirds of processed poultry sales. So they're a big monopsony and they're power, it allows them to lock poultry farmers into really exploitative contracts um, that will require them to do things like take on debt to build expensive chicken houses, and also like really to dictate every aspect of their operations to ask for low prices. And so as a result of that, um, three out of four poultry farmers in the US live below the poverty line. And as well, um, farmer suicides are a huge problem, uh, not just in the chicken industry, but a lot of the food um, system looks like this. And so farmers, you know, you think about it as this sort of like idyllic industry where you've got families raising chickens and open coops and stuff. And we know it doesn't look like that, but it's not just that farmers are evil and want to do feedlots. It's that they really don't have any power and they're in situations that they don't like either. Yeah. And I mean, like we, we talked about that too in like the, I think the chocolate episode is a good example of that where like uh, what uh, Cote d'Ivoire tried to set chocolate prices, but there's only like three companies in the world that buy chocolate and they're like, no. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a great deep cut. I forgot I said that. I mean, I don't know. Is that true? <laughs> no, you're totally right. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. Um, I don't remember whether it was Cote d'Ivoire, but um, but one country definitely did try to do that and it did not work. 
Yeah, and fast fashion is another great example, right? You wonder why, you wonder why sweatshops uh, can't set good working conditions. Um, you know, it's partially that there aren't that many fast fashion companies. But in addition to um, the power that they can have over suppliers, uh, monopolies also use their platform privilege to gain unfair advantage over competitors. Um, so that's another way that monopolies can really shut out competition and make things worse for everybody. One example here, the European Commission fined Google $5 billion in 2017 for abusing its dominance by requiring phone makers that use Android to pre-install Google's apps. So that basically plays off of something called the default bias that people will use things that are already installed on the app. It gives Google an unfair advantage on those kinds of phones. Well, in, in some cases, you can't even remove the apps from the phones. Like if you try to remove an app from your phone that comes pre-installed, good luck. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with Apple, it's a little different because Apple's also producing the phones. But with Google, you have these other phone makers that could and that should, in theory, you know, not pre-install Google's apps. They're just running on the Android system and it should be fair. But they because Google was 80 percent of market share, phone makers really didn't have an alternative that they could go to. And so they didn't have the power to be able to say, no, we're not pre-installing your apps on our phones. They had to do it. So that was found to be illegal, but <laughs> oftentimes these things happen and then there's a fine and then um, companies keep using the same practices until they're forced to. So it's not just Google that's used its platform privilege to its advantage. There's a bunch of other companies that do it as well. Amazon, in a bunch of different ways, uses its retail platform as a way to sort of advantage its its brand as a seller, right? Because Amazon also sells goods and will use data to gain an advantage on competitors. It will use its platform to get an inside look at the data of competitors. Um, and it sort of is able to, to pick and choose which areas that it wants to be to sort of beat out the competition. And that's something that it can only do because it is the platform on which a bunch of businesses have to sell as well. So that's pretty fucked. Yeah. Yeah. This other one, I didn't realize it was an anti-competitive practice because I just kind of thought it was commonplace, but it's something called Sherlocking. Have you ever heard of that before? No. <laughs> <laughs> so Sherlocking, um, it refers to Apple's practice of incorporating features of its most popular apps into its new version of iOS. And uh, the reason it's called that is that basically um, Apple had a Sherlock app. I don't know if it still does. But there was a company called Karelia Software that developed an app called Watson because they saw some flaws in the Sherlock app and they wanted to produce a better version. And all Apple did was sort of add the functionality from Watson into Sherlock and it eventually you know, it killed Watson in the process. Oh. So, yeah. To be super honest, I kind of wish they did a little more of that when it came to the Apple podcasting app. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, um, you know, exercising platform privilege in an unfair way. The other thing is that even though predatory pricing is illegal, it's not being enforced. So monopolies use this tactic all the time to drive competitors out of business. And the two biggest um, sort of culprits in that are um, Amazon and Walmart. Monopsonies can also charge rents for companies that rely on their products or platforms. So one example is what's called the Apple tax, um, and it's the 30% commission on app sales that Apple charges 
And it brought in $15 billion in revenue in 2019 for the company. So if you're an app provider in Apple, you have to pay a tax to them, basically. And it's 30%? Apparently. I don't know if it still exists because I think there was a an antitrust case about it. There were so many examples that I kind of lost track, but <laughs> yeah. And Google also, it requires entrepreneurs and businesses to pay if they want to appear at the top of searches for um, businesses. So there's a tech company called Basecamp that um, it pays $72,000 annually to be a top result when people Google Basecamp. And the reason we know about that is that Basecamp is sort of like vocally opposed to this. And so they share that information, but um, they're doing this for all sorts of companies as well. All right. So that's lots of ways in which monopolies are super bad for the economy. (laughs) Should we talk about democracy now? Yeah. (laughs) And how monopolies are just dictating what policies we have. So and they have been for decades. And that's why this is a problem that's only getting worse. Yeah, it's not awesome. (laughs) I found a good quote uh, from a congressman in the 1930s. His name was Edward Keating. And he said, we can have democracy or we can have a horde of multimillionaires. We can't have both. And I think that really sums up the current era. (laughs) A really depressing way. So uh, one of the problems... um, that monopolies cause for democracy is basically that when you have enough economic power concentrated into a few hands, that power can then be converted into political power through lobbyists and also political contributions. So we know that a lot of major companies are donating to politicians. It's one of the reasons that studies have found politicians really govern to the political preferences of the top 10% of earners rather than to the median voter or to like the average person, which you would think in a fair democracy would be who you'd want to target um, your policies to. But it doesn't matter because it's all about how much money you have for your campaign. That's that's how you win. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And in addition to that, uh, companies are employing, especially really big companies, are employing lobbyists. uh, So To give you an example of this, in 2017, Walmart had 62 lobbyists on its uh, payroll working to influence the U.S. government. So that really makes it hard for citizens groups to compete, right? Because there's just, when you have really big companies, they can pay for political influence in a way that they couldn't if economic power was more dispersed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing for you and I to care about an issue a lot, like, say, the fishing industry. But if there's lobbyists whose entire jobs are to build reports and go talk to politicians, and you and I, like, we don't have time to go talk to politicians. Like, we can send an email, but we can't spend, you know, 40 hours a week building a case, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very difficult, and it's a problem that we really won't solve until we solve the monopoly problem. Another issue is specifically because we have media monopolies. We've really gutted the free press and local journalism, and that leaves society much less able to hold politicians to account. And it means, in effect, that um, politicians are even more susceptible to corruption because they know that they can do it in the dark, right? 
they know they won't be held to account because there's not an independent local media that's investigating. We have such a problem with media right now that they don't even have to hide it. Like, look at Donald Trump and he can just be like, oh, well, the media is lying. And it's you don't if you don't have a trusted source where you get your news, then it's really easy to be like, well, maybe the media is lying. Yeah. And I mean, there's basically like three media companies in the United States that deal with news. And uh, Fox News has the highest attention share of that. And in part, it's because they're the ones that reach, um, you know, a lot of rural places in the States. So you can imagine if Fox News is your only source of news, that's really going to change the way you engage with politics. Yeah. And it, it, it means that you might wonder, like, why all of these, you know, dummy Democrats would want to vote for anyone other than the Republicans in your area, you know, because that's the only source of news you're getting. Or if you're going on the internet, it's even worse because it's really easy to fall into Facebook groups that are, you know, really extreme. Or, I mean, YouTube's algorithms are built specifically to get you to keep watching longer. And that means you're going to be watching stuff that maybe isn't necessarily true. Yeah. And I mean, Concentration of control over the internet also makes this a big problem, right? Um, Because in addition to there only being a few media companies, there's now a few big tech companies that control the internet. And it makes news publications really dependent on them to reach users. And the result of that is that like newspapers are dying uh, because Facebook and Google are taking 85 to 90% of the like. $150 billion digital advertising market, right? It's not that like the model of advertising as a form of income doesn't work. It's that the internet is so concentrated that newspapers don't really get a slice of the pie anymore. And so as a big result, like we don't have, we have way fewer newspapers. They're owned by a few conglomerates um, that often have other kinds of business interests, right? Like In Atlantic Canada, the Irvings control a lot of the media there and like their fortune is in oil. So, I mean, how much environmental journalism do you think is really going to be done there? You know, it's a real problem for democracy that needs to be solved. Yeah. Uh, Also, Behind the Bastards has done a whole episode about Facebook specifically and how they were trying to make it internet available in countries that weren't very much online, but the internet that they had access to was just through Facebook and how that quickly radicalized a bunch of people and caused major issues. So I would shout out Behind the Bastards episode on Facebook for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So in addition to like the effects on the free press and corruption, monopolies are also bad for democracy uh, because they increase inequality through their impact on employee wages and prices, right? So there are a lot of ways that monopoly is a structural problem for democracy. It's not the only problem that democracy is having, of course, but it's a big one. And if we don't solve it, you know, democracy may not exist as it currently does. But there are also, you know, other harms to society that aren't specifically related to, you know, democratic politics. So one example here is tax justice. Industry concentration is one reason that big companies pay so little tax. Monopolies do donate to politicians, and that means that they have power over those individuals, but they also have enormous power over regional economic activity when they're like the major employer, which then gives them the power to demand things like tax breaks and to avoid tax without like knowing that they won't have a response from the regulators because they're too big to fail. Just to give you a few examples here, 
Walmart has reportedly sheltered uh, $76 billion in tax havens, which just for context is a little bit less than 10% of the CDC's public health preparedness and response budget, which seems important. (laughs) (laughs) So glad that's in like the Caymans or whatever. Amazon's federal income tax rate in 2018 was negative 1.2%. So they 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 got they got money from taxes. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> That's fucked up. So yeah, um, this is a big problem. It's not just Walmart and Amazon. Uh, we've talked about tax justice on the podcast before. A lot of big companies pay very little tax and Although a lot of that is legal, the fact that we have these loopholes and we and companies get tax concessions, it has something to do with the economic concentration of power and how that plays itself out in politics. Monopolies also extract rents from our public services. Here's something really fucked up. Walmart and food stamps. Have you heard about this before, Kyla? Is it that they pay their employees with food stamps? <laughs> More or less. It's basically that Walmart... They pay their employees so little that Walmart employees actually make up the largest group of food stamp recipients in most states in America. And then they spend those food stamps at Walmart, presumably. Yep. 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 Walmart earns $13 billion in annual revenue from food stamps um, and an estimated 18% of all food stamps are redeemed at Walmart. So we're actually like hugely subsidizing Walmart because they don't want to raise minimum wages and they lobby against minimum wage increases. So they're not paying their employees enough to actually live and survive. So those employees are going on government assistance programs, which are then spent at Walmart. It's so fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, because you're at work. You might as like you're not going to go to a different grocery store. Well, and also it's the cheapest game in town most of the time. Yeah. And I... Ah, I don't like that because then it means that they're being rewarded for underpaying their employees. Mm-hmm. Yep. In a society that wasn't dystopian, that wouldn't happen. Another harm, uh, the political power of monopolies has enabled them to block a lot of laws that a majority of people support and to pass laws that a majority of people do not support. Few examples of this: uh, mega food companies have opposed animal welfare laws, even though most people agree that there should be stricter laws on things like feedlots. And instead, they've gotten what's called egg gag laws passed. Um, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but they're basically laws that make it illegal for people to go in and be sort of investigative journalists at factory farms, or for concerned citizens to document the animal cruelty that they see on transport trucks. So that's pretty fucked up. It's also not a thing that people like in society like. And so if democracy was functioning properly, these laws wouldn't exist. And instead, we'd have animal welfare laws. Yeah, I would think that in a democracy, open access to information would be important, not gagging journalists who are trying to expose shitty things that are happening. Yeah, especially since something like 80% of people want better animal welfare laws for factory farms. You know, you would think that's enough of a majority to get anything passed, but no. Kristen, I didn't think that we would be able to do an episode more dystopian than like fishing or fast fashion, <laughs> but we're starting uh, 2022 off with a with a real banger here. Yeah. Some other popular laws that companies that are monopolies or oligopolies have opposed successfully, minimum wage laws, extremely popular, but they've managed to oppose them. Bans on plastic bags, styrofoam, straws, things like that. They've prevented the passage of a Green New Deal, even though it's extremely popular. 
and have also lobbied for state laws. Um, this is fucked up. There's a big problem with access to the affordable internet. It's also a problem in Canada, but in the United States, it's like the reason that something like 20% of people without internet access don't have it. It's just that they can't afford it. It's not that they live in like remote areas. So a lot of cities have been like, hey, you know what would be a great solution? We'll offer a low cost internet that's actually like publicly run. We as a city can do that. That sounds great. But you know, powerful tech companies have lobbied for states to put in place laws that make it really hard for municipalities to be able to do that. Okay, so I've painted a pretty dystopian picture, and you might at this point be wondering, how do we get here? <laughs> Modern antitrust law, as I had mentioned at the beginning, it started around the late 1800s and early 1900s, and it was a response to the rise of what's called the robber barons. And these were basically a group of wealthy monopolists that rose to power um, during the Gilded Age in America. It was a time when America was sort of a bunch of disparate regional economies and, you know, various technological changes allowed for the country to be connected economically. And uh, the robber barons really took advantage of that and set up these monopolies that were incredibly exploitative. So... Carnegie Steel Company is an example, Rockefeller Standard Oil, um, and also J.P. Morgan. You know, some examples, certainly not all of them, but of some of the biggest robber barons. Just to give you an example, by 1904, Standard Oil controlled 91% of oil production, uh, which is a lot. <laughs> You know, there is an investigative journalist, um, you know, people were sort of largely not too concerned about the robber barons. They didn't like having to pay higher prices or being in shitty conditions or having like having bad workers conditions. But there is a, a researcher, an investigative journalist named uh, Ida Tarbell, and uh, she published an expose of Standard Oil's business practices, and it prompted this nationwide public outcry. And ultimately led to modern antitrust law, including the Canadian law. It's really based on the Sherman Act, which um, was partially, you know, was really catalyzed by this expose. So Ida Tarbell, in addition to being like a female journalist at the turn of the century, she has published what is arguably the most influential book in American history. A little point of optimism. Uh, journalism matters. <laughs> But yeah, so she uh, she publishes this expose. People are like, holy shit, Standard Oil's evil. <laughs> and uh, the Teddy Roosevelt administration's like, okay, we're going to do something about this. The Sherman Act, which is the main uh, monopolization law, gets passed. And then the Roosevelt administration, uh, they file an antitrust case. And in 1911, the Supreme Court breaks up Standard Oil. So by the end of the 1910s, most of the robber barons had been broken up or otherwise regulated. So it was a real big success to a certain extent. So you have those early antitrust laws that are starting to get passed. You know, there's one that gets passed in 1890. There's another one that gets passed in 1914. And some antitrust cases start to take hold in the like early 1900s and by the 1910s most of the robber barons are dismantled. And uh, you start to see a lot more trust busting that's happening during that period. And then World War I happens and, you know, there's a more nationalist approach to the economy during the war and antitrust enforcement weakens a lot. Then after um, World War I, the Depression happens and 
antitrust starts to be something that's enforced again because the depression's not great and FDR's in power, you know. So you get some antitrust action again. Then World War II happens and everybody's like, oh yeah, nationalism is great and they stop sort of enforcing antitrust. And then you get to the post-war era, which is the peak antitrust era. So after World War II ended, it was the most aggressive era of antitrust enforcement law Law enforcers were sort of the most aggressively acting against monopolies during that period. And one reason for that is uh, Hitler's Germany. Um, it was, there are a lot of large monopolies that were in power in Germany. And so monopolies got associated with fascism. Um, I'll give you an example of this. U.S. Secretary of War Kenneth Royal placed the blame for fascism partly on monopolies. Here's the quote. Monopolies soon got control of Germany, brought Hitler to power, and forced virtually the whole world into war. So monopolies are really seen as a culprit in World War II. And competition is seen as a safeguard against not only fascism, but also the sort of looming red threat that is being perceived. There's this idea that the American economy is capitalist, and so you have to have this dispersion of power. Right? You can disagree with the ideology, but it is the thing that underpins strong enforcement of antitrust cases. So there are some more laws that are passed to deal with monopolies, and also there's a lot of aggressive antitrust cases that are going on. And uh, mergers in general, the government's super skeptical of mergers, um, especially when they gain any sort of market share. And a lot of times they'll be disallowed. Then there's this case against AT&T. Do you know what AT&T is? Uh, isn't it a telecoms company in the United States? Yeah. Um, and like in the 50s, AT&T basically like was the phone company. You know, it was a monopoly in telephones when telephones were still like somewhat new. In 1974, the Department of Justice filed an antitrust case against AT&T, uh, which had at the time been the sole service provider for in the U.S. for decades. So in 1982, AT&T gets broken up. This is a huge um, case, but it's also sort of the last case of that aggressive antitrust era. It marks the beginning of the current era, which is this very weak enforcement of antitrust because antitrust cases in the United States become judged by something called the consumer welfare standard. Have you ever heard of that before? No, but it doesn't sound like what we have right now is very good for consumer welfare. So I don't know if it did what it was supposed to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> free marketers are very good at at marketing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they can weave a nice narrative. So basically, beginning in the 1950s, you get the rise of what's called the Chicago Boys. And they're these free market economists, or they can be other kinds of scholars, but they have a free market ideology. And they're in the University of Chicago, mostly in the economics school. And they're funded by a lot of sort of like right-wing philanthropy and think tanks. So it's the right sort of trying to provide an intellectual foundation for this ultra-extreme free market ideology. And these Chicago boys, they start to argue that, you know what, actually not all anti-competitive behavior is inefficient. And, you know, maybe maybe these rich right-wing philanthropists like the, the Koch brothers, maybe we shouldn't be targeting their companies so much. And maybe being a big company is okay and the government shouldn't get involved. 
So um, Robert Bork is one of the biggest names on this in terms of antitrust. He's the big Chicago boy on antitrust. He proposes that antitrust action, it should actually only be brought against companies if enforcers can show that uh, a merger or monopolization has caused consumer harm. So if a merger specifically results in higher prices. So that creates this sort of like additional burden for enforcers to be able to prove. You don't just have to improve uh, to prove that market share is growing and that there's like the company controls 70% of the market or more and it's a monopolist. You also now have to prove that they're doing that in order to raise prices or to otherwise make products worse. That's so dumb because there's so many different ways that a monopoly can harm a consumer <laughs> that isn't just, oh, the price is higher. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So... I mean, in theory, you could prove those other ways, too. But a lot of that doesn't happen until well after the merger has taken place. So it's pretty fucked up. Well, in some of these things, it's taken decades to tell that the harm is being done because you have to do research and look at the numbers. Exactly. And, like, and now it's too late. <laughs> yeah. So this consumer welfare standard, it starts in scholarly circles. The Chicago boys are sort of arguing for it. And eventually, the Supreme Court adopts it as the standard um, in 1979 in a case called Ryder versus Sonatone. And uh, the election of Ronald Reagan happens like shortly around that time as well. And it really cements this shift because we're now in a neoliberal era where we also don't care about antitrust, I guess. <laughs> so from the 1980s onward, this consumer welfare standard, it's become the basis of antitrust law, and it's really made enforcers' lives difficult. Because rather than enforcing antitrust on the initial basis of like how big a company is or how much market share they have, U.S. enforcers now also need to show that a monopoly has resulted in a harm to consumer welfare. And that's true even though promoting corporate efficiency actually doesn't appear anywhere in the Sherman Act, which is the main antitrust legislation. So there's no reason they should have to do this, but it's become legal precedent. And the results are fairly predictable, right? Between 1996 and 2016, the number of companies that are listed in the U.S. stock market has fallen in half. Um, there's been a lot of consolidation. Companies are bigger. There are fewer companies. The FTC, um, which is one of the regulators of antitrust in the United States, it has challenged fewer and fewer proposed mergers over time, which means that you have more and more industries that only have like four competitors in it. Uh, so just to give you an example, in the United States today, there's only four major airlines. And that was actually when Southwest was around. They may have gone bankrupt. Um, I can't remember. There's also only four major telecoms carriers, three major drugstores, and two major beer producers. <sighs> so, you know, we're in this era of extreme industry concentration that looks a lot like it did in the late 1800s and early 1900s, where we have just a few companies that have substantial power. A lot of the companies are technology companies, and they argue that it's because the internet is so much more complicated. But in reality, when you like sort of peel back the curtain, a lot of the same rules that have been applied to things like railroads and radio and television could equally be applied to social media networks and the internet. It's not truly because things are too complicated. It's because we've stopped caring. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know? the 1980s, Fuck you, Ronald Reagan. Like, we're really reaping the rewards of that presidency. <laughs> I know, truly a disaster. So maybe we'll turn to something slightly more optimistic. And that's the question of what can we do about it? 
I mean, the good news is that a lot of the laws on the books are already strong enough. So what we really just need is political will to enforce the law aggressively. If we're looking at what individuals can do, Sally Hubbard is very clear in her book um, that she does not think any kind of consumer action will make a difference. Boycotting Google is not going to matter. Boycotting Amazon is not going to matter. The only way to address the monopoly problem is through public policy. So we need to really think of ourselves as citizens in order to address this issue. And she's got a few different policy solutions that she thinks will put us back on the right track. So One of those is privacy regulation, um, that we do need to regulate big tech to get consumer privacy laws, just like the European Union has done with the GDPR. We need to set up those rules and aggressively enforce them. She also argues that uh, we need to ramp up antitrust enforcement, or in Canada, you could sort of say uh, competition law enforcement. Antitrust enforcers should be more aggressive in bringing cases to court. They shouldn't worry too much about negative precedents because the laws have been so gutted already, it hardly matters. When there's bad court precedent, federal and state lawmakers need to actually step in to pass laws. They should overturn the consumer welfare standard. There are a bunch of different interpretations out there. This is kind of like a wonkish thing. But there's a lot of arguments in the states right now about replacing the consumer welfare standard with either going back to previous legal interpretations or just adding considerations for things like citizen well-being, employee well-being, and environmental welfare. I think in Canada, and again, I'm not an expert, but I think the wording is the public interest, which is different, and I would say better. (laughs) So could do that. (laughs) Uh, So legislation could also, in addition to sort of overturning those bad precedents, could make antitrust cases easier, faster, and cheaper to bring forward. So governments aren't so gun-shy about doing that. And uh, antitrust enforcement should also use penalties that are stronger than fines because fines, especially when they're low, really don't work. So they should be more aggressive about breaking up big companies and also putting in place perpetual conditions into mergers. Uh, And they should also, um, you know, when there are illegal mergers that they didn't catch at the time, they should also unwind them later. So Facebook's acquisition of WhatsApp and Instagram might be good examples of that. Or Disney owning literally every other movie maker on the <laughs> planet. <laughs> Absolutely. I do like the crossovers and Easter eggs, but it's also <laughs> probably bad for society. <laughs> or just art in general, I don't know. But this is really interesting because the solutions here are something that it doesn't matter what end of the political spectrum you're on. This is bad. Like, this is bad if you're a socialist. This is bad if you're a communist. This is bad if you're a capitalist. This is just, this is only serving the rich people at the top and no one else. Yes, absolutely. You need to be in a very extreme strain of free market ideology to actually think that enforcing antitrust is bad. (laughs) Yeah. And I think like part of it is still this this mythology of the American dream where people think, well, I don't like it's the tax law thing where it's like, well, I don't want to tax the rich because I might be rich one day. But I think I think the further we get into the uh, 21st century, the more people are realizing that that's actually not the case. <laughs> and it's okay. It's okay. Like, I don't need to ever be a millionaire to live a good life, but I do need to be able to have my basic needs met. And that is getting more and more difficult the more and more we let these things run away. So I think, I think, I hope, I'm feeling hopeful actually that more people will realize that this is the right thing to do. And all you have to do is 
talk to your politicians. <laughs> yeah. So two other policy solutions that Sally Hubbard argues for. Uh, one is interoperability. So this would be requiring tech companies to make their platforms interoperable so that if you're on one social media network, you can securely communicate with another one, uh, which I think is a really great idea. Interoperability is also something we talked about in the electronics episode. It would be good in general for competition, whether it's hardware or software. And she also um, echoes a proposal by Sen Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is awesome. Uh, <laughs> and that proposal is to prohibit platforms from competing against companies that depend on them. Seems like a good rule. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah, and it's also one that's been applied in the past to railroads, banking, and television. So it's not like a crazy solution that's untested. You could just do this. <laughs> and I also want to highlight that, like, Sally Hubbard's proposals, like, they're not the be-all, end-all. Um, there are a lot more sort of, like, aggressive proposals that are out there as well. And one example of that is nationalization, right? We talked about, um, Kyla, you had mentioned how telecoms, you know, you might consider that sort of a natural monopoly or oligopoly because you have to service a lot of people across a big country like Canada and you have to build a lot of infrastructure for that. But like one thing that we can do is make those things public utilities. That's <laughs> like what we've done with healthcare and it's what we could do with things like telecoms. And actually, um, James Muldoon of Jacobin has called for making Google and Facebook public utilities. So, you know, we could enforce antitrust law to make competition wider. We could also take some of this stuff that seems to be a natural monopoly and actually just bring it into government. You know, we did that with airlines in the past. Could do it again. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's worked for healthcare for us, sort of. I mean, we could, I mean, honestly, our the problems with our healthcare system are not because it's been publicized it's because it's it's the privatized parts of it you know yes yes <laughs> i've got an academic paper on long-term care about that <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to talk a little bit about canada specifically because a lot of this episode has been about america and you know we're a canadian podcast we try to make things relevant to canada in our episodes it was just really hard in this one because there's like basically nothing on competition in canada what I will say is that a lot of these policy solutions could work in Canada too. And I actually want to also shout out uh, that we do need to modernize the Competition Act. This is something that the Competition Bureau chief is calling for actively. There was an article I read that came out like two days ago that was arguing for it. So it's really a live issue. In particular, one area that needs to be modernized that I just think is wild is that apparently um, there are maximum fines set at $10 million for a first offense and $15 million for subsequent violations. And that's like what some of these companies make in seconds. It's like clearly way too low. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Okay. So who can we reach out to, to, to kind of push that issue? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's not really much public discourse on this in Canada. So I would say if it's a concern, you can write a letter to your MLA, um, or to your uh, member of parliament. I would also recommend, so there are, there seem to be two academics and also the competition bureau chief that are the only ones talking about this issue in Canada, which seems like a problem. But, you know, you can sort of follow those two academics. That's a good option. You can also help by just talking about monopolies and why they suck, right? Getting an issue out there is the first step to galvanizing action on the subject. 
and it can help to stay informed about monopoly issues. One suggestion I'll have if you're in Canada is uh, Vass Bednar is one of the two academics talking about competition issues. You can subscribe to her Regs to Riches newsletter, and we've linked to that in the research notes. You can also follow her on Twitter at Vass, uh, V-A-S-S-B, so Vass B, V-A-S-S-B. Um, you can also support an anti-monopoly citizen group where you are if you're in a place that has one. Um, you can sign up for their newsletter to stay informed. So um, we'll have links in the research notes to some American anti-monopoly citizen groups. There's actually a fair amount of activism that's happening there right now. Maybe you can be the person that starts the Canadian chapter of the Open Markets Institute, you know. Um, but failing that, you know, it could help to donate to a national anti-monopoly group in the States. Even though usually I propose Canadian solutions because I don't think it's good that we just have American political discourse that we import. In this case, if antitrust is improved in the United States, it hugely benefits the whole world. So you may want to donate to one of these groups. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and I mean, again, even though we do fundamentally need public policy pro solutions to this problem, you can take certain actions that can help to protect yourself from harms of monopoly. So um, I'm not an expert on this. I want to highlight that. But there are some tools that can be helpful to protect your privacy. Um, so Brave is a good browser. You can also use the DuckDuckGo search engine that I think Robbie talked about in our last episode. You can use ProtonMail for email and Signal for messaging. And we'll do a whole episode on privacy so we give you some better solutions. But those are some starters. And my last suggestion would be Better know a monopolist in your life. Next time you buy food or pop through a drive-thru or buy a tube of toothpaste, take a few seconds to find out who owns that go-to brand. Are they monopoly? Have they done monopoly things? Are there alternatives that you could support instead? Thank you, Kristen, for suggesting some solutions. It sounds like the best solution is to spread the word so everyone should share this episode with their friends, colleagues, loved ones, acquaintances, people you hate. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Especially people you hate. They'll probably benefit the most from this episode. <laughs> if you liked today's episode, you should check out the Harbinger Media Network featuring shows like Tech Won't Save Us, which is really in line with this the theme that we were talking about here. Uh, host Paris Max explores the seedy underbelly of big tech. And if you want to hear more about about, you know, privacy issues and just all of the wild things that big tech gets up to. Tech Won't Save Us is something I've been really jamming on. <laughs> or you can find more about the Harbinger Media Network and the entire cross-country lineup of shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. And you can catch us, listener, on our next episode. <laughs>